Hey everyone, welcome back or welcome for the first time. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share with a friend who you think might like it and follow us on Spotify and hopefully soon other podcast platforms. This episode of Voice Notes is a little more intense than usual and parental advisory is recommended. I'm going to pause here before I continue so that you can grab headphones or turn it off and listen to it later. Okay, here we go. So we talk about abortion in this episode. We mention miscarriage and sex, and I'd like to just add a trigger warning right here, as well as letting you know that there are some intense adult themes discussed in this episode. I'd also like to add a disclaimer that we all on this podcast, the three of us, we believe in God and we believe in halacha for ourselves. Okay, here we go. Hi, welcome to Voice Notes. I'm Shira, and this is my friend Miriam. Hi, I'm Miriam. I teach Jewish history at YU. And this is my friend Devorah. Hi, I'm Devorah, and I work in marketing. So this week, we are continuing a conversation that started a little bit in our Nittelnacht episode. Miriam mentioned it towards the end, so it was a long one. If you got all the way to the end, you heard Miriam talk a little bit about reproductive rights and the Jewish perspective on it and how it fits into America and the world and law and legislation and voting and a whole lot of stuff. There has been a lot of news coming out recently about this topic, especially with the overturning of Roe v. Wade that happened fairly recently in the Supreme Court. And so that's what we're talking about this week. It's a little diversion from our usual, which is mostly about Israel. And I would like to mention that we are very aware of the article that came out in the New York Times about the sexual assaults that took place on October 7th. That's not what this episode is about. We may wind up doing an episode about that, but this is something that came up for us now, and we want to talk about it. So we're going to start with Devorah, and she is going to she's going to kick us off. Devorah, go for it. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is something I've been following um, just overall as it's been unfolding in this country, honestly, over the last few years. Um, but only now, um, recently, it's really been some of these hypothetical scenarios that we've been hearing people warn us about for a long time have actually been happening and we've been seeing them unfold in front of us. So one of those just happened over the last few weeks, um, a woman named Kate Cox. And I do recommend uh, if you want to know more about her to look up the um, the daily episode about her, her that had an interview uh, with her talking about her story. And it was really just very um, touching to hear it from her own from her own voice. And we had talked to the doctor about, you know, what we what do people do? I felt so, I had no idea we'd be in the situation. I asked, what do women do in the situation? Um, if we choose not to continue the pregnancy, is that an option in Texas? And she said, no. I wanted to, on the one hand, do what I knew was best for my health and for a future pregnancy and for my well-being and our family. And at the same time, you know, it felt really scary that you couldn't do that in my state that I love deeply. Um, I'll admit, you know, working full time and two little ones that keep me busy. I 
I didn't know all the nuances of the law, but I imagined that there were exceptions. And so I was very shocked that we did not fall into that exception in the situation that we were in. Um, so Kate Cox is a woman. She's a mother of two, uh, lives in Texas, and she was she found out she was pregnant. Almost from the very beginning of the pregnancy, there were all kinds of complications and scares and other you know, reasons to be concerned. And they did some testing and found out that she had her fetus had this very rare and deadly genetic condition that has no chance of resulting in a healthy baby. Um, the baby may um, not make it to, to term or may make it to term and die shortly afterwards. It's not a condition that has like some some miracle to save, you know, save the baby. It's just unfortunately one of those things. And this is a woman, again, with two children already. She had had two C-sections before. So she knew that having carrying that third very unhealthy child to term could result in all kinds of complications that ultimately could lead to her losing the ability to have any more children after that. They said she was at risk for uterine rupture and all these other things. So not only would she lose this baby, which again, could never be a healthy baby, uh, but she could potentially not have more children after that. So this is in Texas. Now, I should add, for those who haven't been following, Texas has now banned abortion uh, after six weeks of pregnancy, which is essentially when people find out they're pregnant, with the exception of risk to the life of the mother, that if the mother's life is in danger, they can end the pregnancy. However, at the time when these laws were passed, a lot of people, like my, including myself, felt that that idea of the risk of the life of the mother is just like a very vague and difficult to define concept, and that theoretically there could be a lot of situations that you know, people could de debate or disagree on whether it fell into that category. And this is one of them. The risk to her own life, to her own, you know, being able to survive was not extraordinarily high, although it's possible. Um, the risk was more to her future fertility um, and also to just sort of the needless suffering that she could go through in carrying this pregnancy to term very, very ill while also having two children, again, without a healthy baby. And it could it could also, you know, in, you know injure her or... Um, potentially threaten her life as well. So what happened was that she went to the courts and basically asked for sort of an exception to the rule, saying that in her case, it would make sense and it would be, you know, it would fit into this category of a risk to her in, to carry this pregnancy to term. At first, the hospital said basically they couldn't do it because the risk was not immediate. Her life was not already in danger, right? She wasn't already presenting very specific symptoms that made her at risk of dying imminently. And therefore, they basically said, come back if you are in sepsis, come back if you're already in that situation. Until then, our hands are tied. So she went to the courts and she's actually the first woman to sue for the right to an abortion while pregnant since Roe v. Wade. So she's the first person to rush it to the courts Give, she gave up her own privacy, unlike Roe v. Wade, which was a, an anonymous case. She gave up her privacy to sort of set herself as an example uh, for someone who is suffering from the problems in these laws and the way these laws do not account for real life situations. So in the end, the judge granted it. They said, you know, that makes sense. And the judge specifically said, you know, the idea that she would have to, that she desperately wants to have a baby, but this law could cause her to lose the ability to have a baby is a miscarriage of justice, the judge said. Sounds good so far. However, after that, the Texas attorney general actually reached out to the hospital and to the doctors and said that if she were to have that abortion, um, they could face first degree felony prosecutions, civil penalties, fines, potentially even jail time. Whoa. Even with and, the Texas Supreme Court giving her that yeah, ruling. Yeah. They were like, this does not insulate you from prosecution after the fact. Wow. And they said, uh, 
she did not art effectively basically she didn't prove that her pregnancy was literally threatening her life and therefore this exemption does not apply to her so the supreme court of texas now blocks her from receipt from receiving it and it's really going back and forth at a certain point again like weeks are ticking by now and she realizes she doesn't have more time she's getting really sick and she decides to just go out of state and get the abortion elsewhere which was obviously the right choice for her as a human and as a person. I believe the case is actually going to continue on. I think sometimes in these situations, the theoretical case can keep going, even though she herself is no longer, it's no longer relevant. Wade, that decision was decided long after uh, Roe actually gave birth. So yeah. her pregnancy was kind of the question at the center of Roe v. Wade. That baby was born and she knows, I mean, you know, she's she's a woman in I don't know how, how old she is. She's like a middle-aged woman now. Yeah. Uh, but she knows she's the baby at the center yeah. of the Roe v. Wade case. Yeah. This is a case that is currently, you know, currently ongoing, although she, the woman herself um, has already um, gotten the care she needed. Her lawyer was asked, you know, why didn't you just leave in the first place? And he said, you know, people who need abortions, it's urgent medical care in these situations. They can't just leave. They can't just fly. Sometimes they're already in a in a in a very difficult or precarious medical situation at that point, getting on a plane or getting in a car for a long drive. And remember, these are some of these states are we're talking, we could be talking a drive of 10, 12 hours to the next state or to the state with the nearest abortion clinic. There's the financial cost, there's the time, there's the child care. And then there's just the medical risk involved in doing something like that. And these are human rights violations, really, is, is what the lawyer said. And this this case really caught my attention because it to me, is such a clear example of a place where your moral intuition tells you that she's doing the right thing. But because these laws are written in such a rigid and uncompromising way, there isn't a lot of room for doctors to use doctors, medical ethics boards of hospitals, all the people who typically weigh in on complicated situations. They don't have the opportunity to do that because they have this risk of litigation and imprisonment and fines and all this stuff, losing their license, all these consequences hanging over them that prevent them or make them be afraid of doing what they, I think, what they know to be right. Yeah, that's, it's really wild. Um, I'm going to share another story while we're at it. I had a DNC um, between my oldest child and my second child. I had what's called a complete molar pregnancy. A molar pregnancy is this strange thing that happens. It's really, really rare. It's so rare that when it happened to me, my doctor was convinced that it was a misdiagnosis. I I started my miscarriage in New York, and I was living in Toronto at the time. And so I went to the ER in New York City. They said, this is a molar pregnancy based on the ultrasound I had. When I went back to Toronto, my doctor said, this is so rare, they're wrong, but we're going to do a DNC and we will send the tissue to pathology to see what's really going on because either way, there's no heartbeat. And so I had a DNC and it was a complete molar pregnancy, meaning that it it was this odd schmush conglomeration of cells that would never be a baby. And so there's a complete molar pregnancy. There's a partial molar pregnancy. Both of these, both, both of these things will never be a child. And it was emotionally a lot. And the way it was described to me, 
at the hospital when I was diagnosed at the ER, when I said, what's a molar pregnancy? They said, well, it's kind of like a tumor. And I was like, what? And I was very, very afraid. I had never heard of this before. I looked at my husband and we were like, we didn't know what was going on. Um, it can eventually turn into something cancerous. And some women who don't have a DNC and don't have this removed quickly, as quickly as possible, can wind up needing chemotherapy. And if it doesn't work, some women wind up with a hysterectomy. And some women wind up with death. But that's it's rare because there is care before that point. Um, so this happened to me, even though it's super, super, super rare, even especially in a young woman. I was in my early 20s at the time, my mid-20s. And uh, my doctor said, when you hear hoofbeats, don't think zebras. And so since then, whenever I hear that, I'm like, actually, I'm going to think zebras because this is what sometimes it's actually zebras. <laughs> sometimes it's zebras. So for me, it was zebras. And in my subsequent pregnancies, I always had to have early ultrasounds to make sure that this hadn't happened again, because once you've had one, then you have a one in 10 chance of having it happen again, as opposed to the regular statistics, which are like way, way less than that. So I had really good care and everything was taken care of and I everything went to pathology and I was very, very sick. Molar pregnancies lead to extraordinarily high HCG levels, which makes you very, very nauseous. So I was very, very sick and I didn't have a baby. And so there was a lot of emotional stuff going on and I was really sick and really sad. And um, but I had good care. And after you have a DNC for a molar, you have you cannot get pregnant for they recommend a year. And so that was another hard thing because I wanted a baby. And I had to have blood tests every three days to make sure that I think in the beginning it was every two days or every three days to make sure that my HCG levels were going down because if they don't go down, then you need chemo. So thank God my levels went down very consistently and they they just kept going down and down and down, thank God. And I was okay. And Eventually, you go from every two or three days to once a week checking your blood to make sure everything keeps going down. And after six months, I had been at zero for long enough that the doctor said I could try again, which was exciting because I had originally been told that it would be at least a year. And we got pregnant with my son, and he's great, and everything's good. <laughs> so that was my story. I got diagnosed in New York City, and then I had my treatment in Toronto, where everything was free. and. I was okay. So I read this story about a woman in Oklahoma where the laws surrounding abortion are very, very strict. And this woman had a very similar story to mine. She had a partial molar pregnancy instead of a complete molar pregnancy. So when her miscarriage started, they, they detected cardiac activity. And because of the laws in Oklahoma, that meant they could not touch her unless she was crashing, either cardiac arrest or her blood pressure was too high to survive, basically. She went to three different hospitals with her husband. One of the hospitals told her that the best they could do is that she could wait in the parking lot, and when she started crashing, they would be there. She and her husband and kids lived like an hour away from the hospital, so it wasn't simple for her to just go home and wait and see, but they 
could not legally help her because she wasn't like actively dying because there was cardiac activity in this mess of cells that would never be a viable pregnancy. It would never be a person. And this was a wanted pregnancy. This woman is actually pro-life. And after her experience, she's realized that these laws are just, they're not, they're not safe. She eventually was told by one of the doctors she saw that she should go to Kansas to have an abortion because it's what she needed. She, they told her that she had two weeks to live, basically. Like they were like, you will not make it past two weeks, but we can't help you. And she said that they were all very kind to her, but there was nothing they could do. So she tells her story and she says that the three hour drive to Kansas was incredibly stressful and she was just basically hoping she wouldn't die on the way. Like it's just, it's unbelievable. And anyway, she she went to Kansas. She says that the people there were very, very kind and she had her DNC, dilation and curatage abortion procedure. And she was then monitored for HCG levels like I was. And she's now telling her story. And this just, it really freaked me out. <laughs> um, this, hearing this story, because this is what I went through. And the idea that I would not have been able to have the care I needed. And I realized that I had a complete molar pregnancy and there was no cardiac activity. Like, okay. But I got all of the care I needed and I felt safe and I felt like everything was going to be okay, even though I was really, really scared because someone told me there's kind of a tumor in you and it might be cancer. Like, these are scary, scary things to hear. And I wanted a baby. And this woman also, she was like picking out names and <sighs> the whole thing is just, I don't know. It's a lot. And this is this is what's happening in some places since Roe v. Wade was overturned. So here's where I feel like we need to back up for a second and explain why that is, because Roe v. Wade was overturned, meaning that states now can choose to ban abortions if they want to. Right. Yeah. If they're and legislatures or whatever. I, my husband and I have talked. We're like, I don't think I could ever feel comfortable living in a state where this isn't OK, because right. it's just too scary. I live in California. I'm OK. But the thing is, the people who have you know, have moral or ethical opposition to abortion are not talking about a, a more um, um, a molar pregnancy. They're not talking about right. a pregnancy, right? Those are not conditions that most people, except for maybe some very, very extreme, you know, kind of people who are like, you know, hands off, God does what he does. But most people, most, I would venture to say nearly all people in America would not look at a molar pregnancy or an ectopic pregnancy or yeah. even the condition like Kate, who we were talking to earlier, the condition that she was dealing with, the vast, vast majority of people in America would not ha think that those things are unethical. Yeah. And yet we have laws being passed in many states, close to half the states, I believe now, banning those procedures, right? So there's this weird disconnect that I don't fully understand how it's happened between the majority of people's ethical and moral opinions and the laws that are supposed to somehow reflect that. Laws, because they have to be extremely technical, they can define things down to such a level that they actually fail common sense tests, right? Like if life is heartbeat and heartbeat is cardiac activity, everything's very technical and defined, then 
suddenly you have this lump of cells that can hurt or kill a woman isn't a baby never will be a baby but because of this like very technical definition of the law you have doctors afraid to do what is so obviously ethically like unambiguously ethically correct but they're scared because the law is written in such a way that it could potentially get them in trouble like that is such an easy yeah. example because there's no one in their right mind that you would present this example to that they would say oh yeah you sh you have to carry that and you know whatever happens happens like no one would believe that i think this is a case where <clears throat> the edge voices are the loudest voices on the issue. So most, I think, Americans want to see safe legal access to reproductive care up until, you know, 14 weeks, 23 weeks, whatever it is, where people feel like, you know, a certain point where they're comfortable with abortion being legal. And then after that, people feel much more squeamish about it. But then you have at the at the two edges you know some people arguing um you know no abortion under any circumstances some will say you know for in the case of a woman's life or a woman's health or rape or incest and then there are others who will say not even in those circumstances uh and then on the on the other end you'll have activists who say well it's always fine and it's like going to the dentist and there's nothing wrong with it and it should be legal all the way, you know, until the end of a pregnancy. Um, and so these two voices, right, the activist voices, are not necessarily reflective of where mainstream Americans fall out on the issue. There's no reason why we shouldn't have a consensus uh, that's reflected in our public policy, but these are just kind of the voices that, that have uh, taken hold. What's weird to me is that both of those voices are feel removed from the actual reality of experience for any woman going through this on either side of that spectrum because a woman deciding to have an abortion i think it's a big decision for i'd say the majority of women going through this it's a big thing and to say that it's just like going to the dentist who is it like that for even a regular gynecologist appointment isn't like going to the dentist. So how could a procedure like this be compared to something so, so regular? This is right. not a decision that I think most people enter into lightly, regardless of circumstance. And I do think that the pro-choice movement sometimes needs to be more clear in the way that they communicate, because there's a difference between saying that abortion should not be made illegal up until the point of birth, right? Meaning that at no point should the law step in, which is not the same thing to say that it is ethical or that doctors should be performing it. Because the fact is that doctors do not perform abortions after the point of viability, of course, right? And even after, in many states, like you said, 14 weeks, 20 weeks, in those later stages, it is very, very, very rare to find doctors who will perform those abortions and only under circumstances that they feel are extremely compelling. Um, there's an article I can share in the notes um, from a few years ago about a woman who had one of the latest term abortions that is possible in the United States for a very good reason. She really needed it for various compelling medical reasons. And even so, the process to test and retest and confirm that, you know, the situation that they thought was happening was really happening and make sure there wasn't there was no misdiagnosis or anything and then finding the doctor willing to do it all of that was extremely rigorous and complicated so i think it sort of misrepresents to say that there's people who there are people who say 
abortion up until birth is fine. What people do say is abortion should at no point enter the jurisdiction of legal versus illegal, like most other medical procedures. Yeah. That we don't say, when is it legal to amputate someone's leg? When is it legal to give someone chemo? When is it legal? These are all procedures with serious side effects, right? With moral and ethical implications. We don't really drag them into the courtroom, right? We leave them in the hospital where they belong. And I think that the argument here on the pro-choice side is not that it's okay, but that, that it does not, doesn't belong in the state legislature and it doesn't belong in the courtroom. Yeah. Devorah, can you talk a little bit more about Roe v. Wade, Supreme Court decisions in general, how these things come about and what it means for the country? Sure. I don't know if I can tell you about the Supreme Court in general, but I could tell you about this. Well, I mean, just so, what a Supreme Court decision <laughs> Yeah. Means, what is it? What does it really mean? How, think... it, what it, how it gets there, what it means. And how it, how it trickles down into your own life, right? So yes, exactly. Roe v. Wade was a landmark Supreme Court case decision. Uh, it was decided in 1973. So the life in the lifetime, you know, of many people, you know, that essentially protected the right to have an abortion and struck down many anti-abortion laws across the country. It essentially made it so that it is illegal for a state to pass a law banning abortion. So over those ensuing decades when the anti-abortion movement kind of coalesced and grew and turned into an organized political power, some states that leaned more anti-abortion, had more conservative, more religious, whatever worldviews, were able to pull back on the rights to abortion by limiting, for example, where clinics could be, how many clinics there could be. They could limit things around the abortion to kind of reduce them, but they were not allowed to just straight up ban them. That Roe v. Wade basically meant that they could not straight up ban abortion. And so for decades, a major rallying cry for conservative politics was that if we elect Republican presidents who can appoint Republican Supreme Court justices. Now, remember, Supreme Court justices only get appointed when the previous ones retire or die, right? When a spot opens up, they have lifetime appointments. So it can take, it took decades until that was finally achieved. And then when, you know, when there became, there became a Republican majority on the Supreme Court, a lot of more progressive leaning people, more pro-choice leaning people were immediately devastated, right? Even when when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg yeah. died and we knew that she was going to be replaced by a Republican, the first thought that many, many people had, myself included, was there goes Roe v. Wade. Yeah, and immediately people thought, told yeah. us, don't be ridiculous, right? You guys remember this. I remember. It was my first thought. It was my first thought and my first fear. Your fear mongering, right? And that is exactly what happened just about a year ago now. It took a while because a case had to come before them. Someone had to sue and a case had to work its way through the system. Um, but a lot of states were sort of ready for this and they had these trigger bans uh, ready to go into place that as soon as Roe v. Wade would be struck down, they would have laws that would just kind of instantly go roll out banning abortion at a variety of different earlier points. So six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, different points. Since that time, a year ago, there have been many states that have had elections where people either got to vote directly on the issue, do you think abortion should be banned in the state, yes or no, or vote for people who were campaigning very much on that issue. And what I think is might be surprising to some people is how even in pretty conservative states in Kansas and some other states, people have been not willing to go by themselves to the ballot box and ban abortion themselves. So People obviously wanted Roe v. Wade to be overturned. There was a lot of political pressure for that to happen. But now that it's happened and states have the 
authority to ban abortion if they want, a lot of states are finding that when they put it to the vote, people are having second thoughts and people are not actually wanting for it to happen. Interesting. Okay, so Roe v. Wade was in 1973. And were there rabbinic responses to that Supreme Court decision at the time? How does this fit into halacha and Jewish lives? So I think from the outset, I I, I want to say that we're not going to do a full in-depth, you know, kind of examination of what is the halachic perspective on abortion. None of us are rabbanim. None of us are medical ethics experts. Um, other people have done this really, really well. Last year when Dobbs was passed and it, uh, and kind of in the time before that, this has been kind of an ongoing issue in American cultural and political life for a long time. So there are a lot of resources out there and we'll link to them in the show notes. Yeah, but there's a great episode of there's a great podcast episode of Joy of Text. We will link in the show notes. Yeah. Orthodox Conundrum also uh, did an episode on this, as did uh, the Batsheva Learning Center, which is a Chabad women's girls learning organization. Also, um, their podcast also did uh, an episode about this. And we'll we'll link to all of them so you can get a variety. Everyone and their bubby has a podcast. (laughs) So but I do think it is important to do just some like general framing so we understand kind of what are the parameters of the debate. As I mentioned before, the American, the contours of the American debate are kind of set up as pro-choice. Abortions are kind of always fine. It's a woman's life, you know, and and just general, the liberal idea of bodily autonomy. It's your body. It's your choice. You you make that choice uh, versus the right wing, more conservative view, uh, which is we are pro-life, pro-life in that context implicitly meaning the life of the fetus, right? When they say pro-life, that's kind of the implicit argument there. Yeah, Uh, important, important, important to note. And I think this is kind of framed generally um, in American discourse uh, as kind of the religious view and the secular view. And I think it's really important to parse that because when we say the religious view in America is the pro-life view, Actually, that's the Christian view. We we talked about this in the in the Nittelnacht episode. Christianity is so dominant as the prevailing culture and the prevailing religious culture in the United States that people kind of just subsume all other religions under, well, this is what it means to be religious in America. And when different religious groups will align, let's say, on religious liberties issues, they'll they'll align with Christian groups on, you know, like, can the post office prevail and require someone to work on Shabbat? There was just a Supreme Court case about that, right? The Sabbath, not a Jewish person, but another person who observed a different Sabbath, right? Can they force him to work on the Sabbath? And obviously, Jewish groups care about that because we care about religious liberties. Uh, so we have to be very careful um, what do we mean when we say this is the religious issue? And I want to give an example because this is when I kind of realized that I had absorbed some values that I assumed were Jewish values. In the in the 2000s, there was a big question about federal funding of medical research using stem cells. Uh, this was a big thing around Alzheimer's research, and it was a huge conversation in the United States. 
And Bush, I believe, had like withdrawn federal funding. Sorry. Uh, so but- what, what what would be the religious opposition to stem cell research? Because, like the Christian one, I would say. Uh, because it's there. They they come from pregnancies and abortions and aborted fetuses is where they get the stem cells for the most part there was this so interesting you're saying this because right now my oldest daughter is applying to summer internships in stem cell research oh wow yeah we just wrote her application yesterday it's not it's not fetuses let's be very accurate language it's embryos so embryos are before it reaches the stage it's like it's really still at like a cellular level yes Uh, but it is a human embryo it is a sperm and an egg that have been blended in a in a lab Yes. Yes. Like, I mean, and this is even an issue that some people, some super, super religious people have with IVF mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. IUI. Religious Christians. Yes. Right? Religious Christians. Not religious, yes. Christians. religious Christians. Not yeah. religious people, Yes. I'm sorry. Even, I, here I go. Mess yeah, it up. Here you go. Right. Religious we we Christians. fall into these like cognitive yes. traps. 100%. So I was a kid. I was like kind of a nerdy kid. So I was, I would follow all this stuff. And I assumed, well, oh, wow, here are these people who are coming out with this, like, moral voice opposing stem cell research. I just assumed that that was also the Jewish view. I had no idea. No one was teaching me. Uh, And then I went to seminary, and we had this, like, Devorah and I went to seminary together, and we had this wonderful medical ethics class once a week. Um, And we talked about cloning, we talked about IVF, and we talked about euthanasia, and we talked about stem cell research. Lo and behold, it's fine. And I, according to Halacha, it's fine. And I was shocked. And I think that was the first time at 18 years old, I started to realize that just because something is presented as the moral voice and the religious voice, that doesn't mean it it's my values. And I mm-hmm. need to be very careful to just take a look, examine where where does that come from, is this actually something that represents my own tradition, my own system of ethics or not? So we have this like kind of binary of in in the American debate of the religious view and the secular view and the religious view is abortions are never allowed. I think all of us who live Jewish lives know that that's not the case. Right. So where does this kind of distinction between the Jewish view and the Christian view it comes from? Uh, a deferring interpretation of a pasuk in Shmeis. It's interesting what you said about religious and how we equate religious. We automatically equate religious with religious Christian because that's just like what winds up happening. And I think it's part of why I really don't like referring to myself as religious. Like, I don't like the word religious. And like, for all intents and purposes, for all intents and purposes, I'm observant. Yeah, I say I'm observant. I, I, for all intents and purposes, I'm religious. I keep Shabbat. I keep kosher. Like I do the things. But like, if anyone were to ask me, "Are you religious?" I'd be like, "Eh, right now." Like I think it implies all this like cultural. <laughs> yeah, know. yeah, I agree. Okay, so the pasuk says, "Vehi natsu anashim." So they're they're men fighting. V'nagfu ishahara, and they hit a pregnant woman. V'yatsu yaldeha. So what what does v'yatsu yaldeha mean? Right her child emerges, right? Chabad.org translates it as she miscarries. And there is no catastrophe or fatality. Um, he will be punished. When the woman's husband kind of 
comes and makes a demand, and he will have to give restitution, according to the judges. So the question here is, what happens? What is the asone in the Pasuk? When the Pasuk says there's no fatality, what does that mean? So Rashi says, there's no fatality with the woman. So according to the rabbinic understanding of the Pasuk, there are men fighting, there's a pregnant woman there. She is hit. She miscarries. So there's a fatality in the pr- in the pregnancy, but the woman is okay. And what is the punishment? The punishment is finan- financial Fine. restitution, mm-hmm. right? So this yeah. tells us that forcing an, a, a miscarriage, right, and costing a woman a pregnancy is not considered murder because it's not high of me. So there's no death penalty attached. So this is not to say that it doesn't matter or that a pregnancy it doesn't have value. It's just, it's not murder, and it's not a capital crime. In the same Parsha, it talks about motumat. If you kill someone, then you are liable for the death penalty. And right. so right. it's saying here, not, not motumat. It is not, it's not it is murder, not right? It's not murder. Um, you are not considered as if you killed someone. Now, the Christian view of this is when the Pasuk says, ve'yatsu, Yaldeha, it means that she has a premature birth. And Vilaya Asain, it means that there's no miscarriage. Mm. So therefore, the the reading of the Pasuk leads to very different ethical outcomes of what, what matters here. So on the one hand, it's not a capital crime. It's not murder. Can we do an abortion? Can you ever kill um, a fetus? So there's a Mishnah. Even the word kill is controversial here. Uh, do we say unalive? <laughs> Terminate a pregnancy. End a pregnancy. Terminate a pregnancy. Yes. End a pregnancy. Yes. Um, okay, so this is a Mishnah from Ohalot. Okay, so this is Herak Zion, a Mishnah Vav. So that's chapter seven, the sixth Mishnah. Um, and it says, Ha'isha Shiem Maksha Leilet. So if a woman is having trouble giving birth, so they cut up the child in the womb, in her womb, and they bring it out limb by limb. And I'm reading the translation oh. from Sepharia. Because her life, the mother's life, comes before the life of the, the fetus, right? Wow. Um, Graphic. Yes. Yatsu yes. rubo, but if most of the ba- the fetus has emerged, um, right? So she's in la- she's in active labor. In naiginbay, you don't touch the baby. nefesh nefesh because you don't um, you don't prefer one life over another life. So basically, is this the conversation about the rodef? Yes. Yeah, basically, okay. up until the point of. A, a baby crowning crowning yeah you can terminate this pregnancy to save a, a woman's life so there is this is very explicit in the mishnah like even the language is like very explicit you very graphic it, yeah yeah you it's it you tear it apart limb by limb wow uh, it's it's very yeah graphic. it's it's relevant because things come up in labor who yeah. do you choose 
Do you choose yeah. the mother? Yeah, these are stories. Sometimes look, there are you look stories. Back like at there stories are real stories like this. Yeah. From like, you know, before the sort of modern medical era, even a C section, right? A C section before the age of modern medicine meant killing the mother. Wow. Right? Like Julius Caesar was born by C section. It only happened usually if it was like some kind of royal, you know, birth because that's where you would value this like succession to be line. heir to the throne or whatever over his mother. Um, but yeah, this was, I mean, there was the, before the age of modern medicine, I should add though, that something I think people don't often understand is that the idea that, uh, life begins at conception, which is basically like the Christian view, or at least a lot of Christians is not really something that you can find going all the way back because conception was not understood the way it is today for most of history. Right. When a woman was was like, it was a little bit mysterious, um, even, you know, obviously, you know, today we know, you know, you know, when a person, when a woman conceives and then when two people fall in love. Yes, we will now explain. We told you this was an adult themed episode. There's so a seed and there's an egg. But people, first of all, back back in the day, back before, you know, the modern era, women would miss periods more often because of nutrition or other reasons. So just missing a period by itself did not mean you were pregnant. It was like a warning sign, but it didn't, you know, necessarily guarantee it. And there were no pregnancy tests, Right. So people really only considered a woman pregnant at what's called the quickening, which is when she could feel when she could feel the baby kicking, right? And so a lot of the discourse, and also remember the methods for abortion were a lot less guaranteed, also. So if you actually look back, even um Benjamin Franklin had in one of in some of his writings, he had like folk remedies that people had written down of herbs and things that could be used to restore a woman's period. But what they are is actually abortions. They are taking a woman who thinks she may be pregnant, she's maybe missed one or two or three periods, and then giving her this mixture of herbs to bring back her period, in other words, to end the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, But because the baby had not yet moved, and remember, there's no ultrasound, there's no pregnancy test, there was no proof that the baby ever existed, right? She could miscarry and she might suspect, but she would never know for sure and move on. And there wasn't... fascinating it wasn't ethically brought at all because it was just seen as like the mysteries of the woman you know with her traveling uterus and her hysteria and her mysterious ways and like it wasn't even really a subject of serious debate among the men who made the laws because it was it was woman's work you know it was something you went to a midwife for so interesting it's also interesting considering the halachic ramifications of before and after 40 days because right. That's how where many I was women? How many women even knew they were pregnant before forty days? A good Not question. a lot, I so, assume, based on this. I don't know. I yeah, mean, I think it was pretty. It's pretty, interesting um, to think about, like the whole before forty days. It's considered as like. A sack of water or something. It's like right. it's not. So the, it's a different halachic. Like, like of, can a woman who's the daughter of a kohen, so she can eat shruma, she's married to a non-kohen. And she's pregnant. Can she pregnant bots Kohane eat continue to eat truma while she's pregnant? So before 40 days, she could because the pregnancy doesn't really count for anything. Mm-hmm. So that's kind Wait, of like because when she's pregnant, she's not considered a bot Kohane anymore because well, she's pregnant the, with a non-Kohane. Well, the her baby that she is pregnant with is not a Kohane. Oh, so oh. she can't eat it because is the baby eating it? Yeah, that's so I think funny. That's the question. You know, this oh, is just kind a of a cool, general, weird, a general one. thing. 
that like I actually took an entire course in college besides for the, the class that Miriam was describing earlier in seminary. Because of that class, actually, I went and signed up for a course on medical ethics when I got to Stern as well. And it was fascinating. And I, I really loved it. Um, and a lot of the things I'm referencing now are things I learned back then decades ago and still remember because that's how much of an impact it left on me. But I found it really fascinating how rather than sit down and have the straightforward like abortion, is it okay? Is it not okay? Like straightforwardly discussing the ethics of it, you more often find in halakha these like fringe kind of weird like side issues. And from there, you kind of derive the like underlying ethic rather than discussing it head on, at least in these earlier like Amara and Mishnah sources, partly because like the medical procedures didn't necessarily exist. So it was more abstract, more theoretical. But also I think that's just like the nature of halakhic argument. Like from these fringe cases is where you derive like, okay, but like what's the fundamental concept here? What is the ethic, right? Yeah. I think it's also really interesting. And they talk about this in the Joy of Text episode about abortion that we're going to link in the show notes. They talk about how halacha is not metaphysical. And, you know, there's discussion of like, when does the neshama enter the baby? And what does it mean 40 days? And all of these different things about like the person and the neshama and what does it mean for Judaism and the soul? And when does the soul come into the body? And all these interesting metaphysical things. And halacha has like nothing to do with it. Halacha does not take metaphysics into right. consideration. Halacha is about like, are you in civil court or criminal court? Yeah. Yeah. No, like, what did your donkey do to that guy's donkey? That's what halacha is about. And it doesn't really matter about the soul of the donkey. That's not what we're discussing right now. <laughs> so at the outer end of the halacha debate, we know that if the mother's life is in danger, even to the point of like active labor where the baby is crowning, you can basically terminate the pregnancy to save the woman's life. Mm -hmm. We know that in the beginning of the pregnancy, up to 40 days, there's this question of whether or not it's even considered a pregnancy. But then the whole in between, there's a question. There, there are, There's a range of opinions. Some say it's only permitted for the life and health of the mother. That includes psychological health. Mm -hmm. So in the case of rape, incense, incest, sorry. Um, incense. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, mental illness, suicidality, all of that. that well, would, and that's, and that's uh, a big conversation. And that's, yeah, and that's that why this, be, is, this is complicated. But um, that's, I think that's actually something that I really appreciated when I first learned about this. Like, you... If you just look at this issue, if you if all you know about the abortion debate is the sort of American culture of it, it's like my body, my choice, do whatever you want, or it's never okay. If God's chosen you to die, God's chosen you to die, right? And Judaism is so much none of those things. It mm -hmm. is not your body, your choice, right? Because it's like it's God's body. It, like everything else in Judaism, what you eat and what you wear and what you do, it's not your body, right? Your mm -hmm. body, you have to make choices with your body that are approved. But at the same time, you also matter and your life matters and your health matters. Right. And when we say approach, like when we talk about life, it's, uh, it always is the mother's life. Like it's when always we the say nefesh, it's, it's the mother's life, not the life of the fetus. So even the terms of the debate yeah. just don't really fit the Jewish paradigm. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think the question for me is not, you know, as a, 
as a halakhically observant Jew, I don't want to impose that on the rest of America. I, I, we said like, we don't, none of us want to live in a theocracy. I like living in a secular state, but I want, I want the ability to practice fully, right. According to my own values. I don't need everyone else to practice the way I do. I just need to know that the parameters of public policy allow me and everyone else to practice according to our own faith. And I was wondering actually, like, how does Islam fall into this? Because here we see this difference between Christianity and Judaism and obviously pulling from the same sacred texts. How does this work in Islam? So yeah, what is the the people of the book? (laughs) So I actually reached out to a former classmate of mine. His name is Muhammad. Bottom line, they have two kind of dates, 40 days or 120 days where they say, oh, before 40 days or before 120 days, abortion is permitted, according to some opinions and not according to other opinions. But then after either it's whatever your mark is, the 40 days or the 120 days, it's no longer permitted unless it's for the life and health of the mother. So very, very similar, actually, to the Jewish view, except that there are certain positions that are more lenient because they'll do 120 days instead of 40 days, right? right? But obviously between the four schools, there are different opinions. And even within the different schools, clerics might go this way or that way. Uh, And it's funny, they also have like different scholars who specialize in medical ethics. Like here, you'll, you know, someone has a question and they'll like go to that one rub that specializes in that one issue. So they have a similar thing. Um, And he told me that, that people who are very, devout and and religious will approach a clergy member to help guide them with this decision. So kind of like a very, to me, just felt very, very similar. Very similar. I think what this really shows, it's not so much about the specifics of the, you know, Muslim law or even the Jewish law. It's more that there's such a narrative in this country that if you are a morally serious person, if you are looking at things from a very morally guided light, if you are coming at things from the approach of, you know, belief in God, all of that, like, it can only lead you to believing that abortion is evil, right? Because that is such a Always under all circumstances. Under all circumstances, or nearly all circumstances, which is in effect all circumstances once you put it into law. So it kind of is a twofold thing, right? It's one, that if you were to think seriously about this, and as a religious person who values life and finds this, believes in the sanctity of life as a God-given thing, it can only lead you to thinking that abortion is unethical and evil. And two, that that feeling and that opinion should be enshrined in American law. Those are two assertions that I think we disagree with both, right? Yeah. Judaism has a much more complex view of what abortion is. I remember in the medical ethics class I took in college, the professor would say, Judaism does not believe that abortion is murder because it does not believe that a fetus is a person. A fetus is the closest thing to a person And therefore, abortion is the closest thing to murder, but it isn't. And there's a big difference there, right? When you are allowed to take another person's life requires a very extreme standard of they are pursuing you, right? There's halakhically, if a person is coming after you to kill you, you can kill them, right? Which is why, you know, in the the case where it's like the fetus. Yeah, right. The fetus is potentially. So the interesting thing about a fetus who could potentially kill the mother is that it's considered like a... um, I forget the Hebrew term, but basically it's a person who is unwittingly, right? They're, they're, they're not aware of their actions. They're putting a person, another person in danger. It's not the like same. Like a tinok shenishpa? 
No, that, that's no. Not it. <laughs> basically it's, it's, it's an accidental, right? Like someone who's fallen asleep at the wheel, right? Like, could you shoot them? They fell asleep at the wheel. Can you shoot them so that they don't kill someone else? Right. As opposed to a murderer who is coming after you with intention where wow. you can kill them. Right. This sounds like um, an episode of the good place, you know, like the trolley problem. Like these are like, it is, such, it is like these the are such classic ethical questions. It's just that it's so theoretical, you know, I mean, you know, maybe there's a more concrete approach. Here, let, let's try this. Oh, God! Michael, what did you do? I made the trolley problem real so we could see how the ethics would actually play out. There are five workers on this track and one over there. Here are the levers to switch the tracks. Make a choice. The, the thing is, I mean, ethically speaking... No time, dude! Make a decision! Well, it's tricky! I mean, on the one hand, if you ascribe to a purely utilitarian worldview... Okay. So... What did we learn? The point here is that the status of a fetus is serious. Their their potential for life is taken extremely seriously to the point where if you think about what mikvah stands for, why women go to the mikvah, it is because the potential to create life that is inherent in a woman's cycle is valued to the point where we have this entire constructed ritual around it, right? That we take it seriously, that there's a potential for life. That is how seriously we take the idea of pregnancy and of life, but it's not a person and it never supersedes the real living person who is carrying it and how that translates into practice. So, you know, we talked about like suicidality and the mental health of the mother. That is something, if you look back at the postgame and the rabbis who talked about this throughout that era when Roe v. Wade was first overturned, there's a huge amount of debate of like how much mental suffering would justify an abortion and at what point, right? The earlier on in the pregnancy, very often, the more likely the Rav was to say that the woman's mental suffering or other circumstances could play a role as you go on. It becomes harder to argue that. I think there's a certain, to me at least, a certain sort of logic, I guess, in the idea that it's almost like a sliding scale, right? As the pregnancy continues, the type of reason and the type of justification you need in order to end that pregnancy has to become more and more serious. And I think just intuitively people understand that. The problem is that laws are never going to be as fine-tuned as individual moral intuition in a situation because everyone's circumstances are different. The specifics of the situation are different, right? Like think about Kate Cox, the woman in, in Texas. She had two children already who were suffering from her being ill. She wanted to have more children and she could potentially not. If neither of those things were true, she may have felt differently about carrying that pregnancy, right? People are going to have a different moral intuition based on the very specific details of their life, right? Like, you know, what does their marriage look like? What does their home life look like? What does their health look like? Do they have children that they need to be there for? Are they dealing with, a, you know, a host of other issues that could be affecting them? And historically, rabbis have been, you know, they've disagreed about this, but they have all sort of understood that these are factors that need to be weighed in and taken seriously um, rather than just giving this blanket like no is no. And that's something you see if you read up on what all the different rabbis have said. I mean, even even until today, what they say about these different situations. I think it's something we don't we don't often know because it's such a private thing. People don't talk about it. We, there there could be a rabbi that you know that you've asked questions to about whether your you know pot was trafe or whatever, but you don't know that he's 
told women to go get abortions because they were trying to escape an abusive marriage or because they had severe postpartum depression or because the, the fetus was diagnosed with a chromosomal issue. There's situations like this happening all around us. And often I think we just don't know because people don't talk about it. I noticed actually one time I was at a Yom Chiv meal with some cousins and this must have been soon after RBG died and Amy Coney Barrett was appointed. Um, and so everyone was worried about Roe and everyone was talking about Roe. And it was this huge rousing debate at the table. And my male cousins and the husbands of my cousins had very kind of decided views on this and were like very sure that this was wrong and like this is not right and this is immoral. And they weren't able to kind of move that nuance that they understand in halacha into the bigger American debate. But this was also a very theoretical conversation for them. Once they kind of like with all their bluster kind of moved away. And I can match bluster, by the way. So <laughs> this was like <laughs> me and the guys. Uh, and then they kind of left and it was just the women. Um, and we were chatting and the whole tone of the conversation changed. Yes, yes. yes. And it, it was, was yeah. no longer... It was no longer, well, this is right and this is wrong. And this is, it was like, you know, I, I actually have a friend who had this situation or I'm on a Facebook group where women talk about these like intimate stories and a woman talked about this. A and what if, you know, I had this terrible pregnancy, whatever it is, it just, it, it it's very real. Mm -hmm. It's not a theoretical conversation. It's not an abstraction. And women are much more likely to know other women who have had to get an abortion. Yes. Yeah. Right? And so we understand that this is actually sometimes morally mandated. It's the ethical choice. It, sometimes in a given situation, we understand how fraught it can be emotionally and the difficulties even of just accessing care, right? You need to take off work. You're not feeling well. Someone needs to, this is a procedure. You have other children they need to be cared for that need to be taken care of. Who's going to take you to the doctor? Can your husband take off work or does your husband need to stay home with the other children? Can your mother come in? Do you have a sister who can come in? Do you have a neighbor who can come help you? Who's making dinner, right? Like there are all these things that are kind of surround this that the whenever I talk to women about it, you just you just know that, yeah. right? And 100%. It, it's a different kind of conversation. And I'm not like the kind of person who's like, you don't have a uterus. You don't get to have a converse, you know, a voice in this debate. I, I think that's silly. Um, I, I think having a uterus or not having a uterus doesn't endow you with any special knowledge or expertise or wisdom. Um, I think that's sexist and reductive and ridiculous. And I'm not here for it when people are trying to be sexist or when they're trying to kind of do some like weird biologically essentialist feminist argument. Um, but I think just because of the way we live our lives, we understand the issue very differently. I've had that exact same experience with the Shabbos table bros and their wives and how different their opinions tend to be. I will say, though, and I have had that also where they just understand the nuance. I do find this is a conversation I've had with many, many, many from women. And I, I really recommend if anyone has not seen it, there's an article written by um, the fantastic journalist Avital Goldschmidt 
where she interviewed many, many Orthodox women who had abortions and asked them just about their stories and how it was that it came to be that they had that. So I feel in my experience talking to, you know, the Shabbos table bros and their wives, I've seen that same kind of split in how they feel about this and how they approach this issue. I do often find, though, that from people, because our communities are so good at dealing with emergencies and providing certain kinds of emergency care. Now, I'm not going to say the firm community has, you know, a perfect hold on every, you know, providing every kind of care that people need, but we're great with We don't emergency. need a disclaimer. We're awesome. We don't need a disclaimer, but one thing, one thing the firm world does really well, support. Yeah. Play, think, programs that step up when people are in need is like where our community does best, right? Yeah, it's true. We love an emergency. Like we do so well. <laughs> so I think because from people tend to have that sort of background. And I do, I do want to include a couple like sort of explainers here because I know there's some people who listen to this who are not religious themselves or not Orthodox. So in the Orthodox or world- Or not Jewish. Of, yeah. There are a lot of nonprofit kind of grassroots organizations that provide for people's not not their necessarily their medical needs, although that too, but all kinds of like ancillary needs. So all the things that Mary's talking about. I think they use the word about. mutual aid. I mutual aid, like, yeah. So, like mutual aid, mutual aid. It's like, we've been doing that for a long time. Whether it's babysitting, rides to the hospital, fundraising for people in need, providing meals, all that stuff. The Jewish community really excels at that. And I, I think Working that's a wonderful doctors thing. doctors and specialists. Right. Helping people access specialists and referrals and raising money to cover costs. Yeah. Kosher food in hospitals. Oh, having a place to stay close, close. Yeah, enough. yeah, yeah. You don't have to and, have a hotel. And gamachs. Deborah, when you when you sent that TikTok, you were like, oh, San Francisco, figure out gamachs. Gamachs, yeah. <laughs> so but the, the, I think these are all wonderful things. What, what happens, though, is I think it sometimes leaves a blind spot where people don't realize how much these things do not exist in other communities and just how much people in America often do not have a community. Right. The idea that if you are in need, it's like um, there was a story a few months ago with a very, very young girl. I believe she was like about 14 who had gotten pregnant and had the baby and she was going back to elementary school with a baby. Um, it was absolutely devastating story. And I posted it on my Instagram and I was like, this is this is what I was talking about when, abor you know, abortion became illegal. These are the stories. This is this. It's heartbreaking. And someone I know responded and was like, well, that's on the mother. Like, how do you not get your daughter an abortion? Come on. And wow. I said, well, she lived in a state where it's illegal. She'd have to drive her, you know, days or fly with her. They had other kids. And she was just, my, this this friend of mine just couldn't believe that a person would lack the ability to do that. She's like, come on, it's your kid. You make it happen. You make it work, right? I think sometimes we have a blind spot in our community because we are good at showing up for each other. That not everyone has, has people to turn to in those situations. Yeah. And a person, whether we're talking about a 14-year-old girl or a woman with medical needs or just someone who's extremely poor or whatever the situation is could literally have no one to turn to and have to be and be completely on her own in this financially, logistically, in every other way. You know, where does she stay when she gets there? She can't just call the local Chabad house and get put up. Right. I think we sometimes um, don't realize. I mean, I think we should appreciate what we have, but also realize that we cannot expect American law to a account for those things that the majority of people do not have, whether they're will, unless they're able to pay for it out of pocket, which many people can't do. Also, in general, Jews live in urban areas. I mean, this is just a fact of Jewish history forever and ever. 
we're urban people. And so we live close to one another. Um, and we live in places that have resources. There are hospitals, there are airports, there are doctors. If you live, you know, my brothers went to yeshiva in some like flyover state and, uh, to get to the place where the yeshiva was like you had to fly and then take a bus and then get a ride and like to us it was like where are you going to this like yeah. american shtetl you know but m most people don't necessarily live so close to an airport or close to a, a hospital that has you know full full medical service whatever it is right so the, these are like kind of other assumptions about the kinds of resources that are available to people. Most Jewish people live in blue states like New York and California. You're not going to have a hard time with this. My friend in Florida, she was talking about like, God forbid this would ever happen to me. What would I do? Yeah. But then I've, I've talked to friends in Florida who say, OK, so I'll hop on a plane and go to New York. Without the understanding that if you think that it would be right and correct for you to do that, to hop on a plane and go to New York should you need to terminate a pregnancy, if you think that's correct, then what you're saying is that you think it's okay, but only for those who can afford it, right? And you are not taking into account just how many people cannot afford it, whether it's just the money for the plane ticket, the place to stay, losing their job possibly, right? Getting childcare for their other kids at home. And that actually brings me to something I really want to talk about. I'm hoping Miriam can weigh in as well. When Roe v. Wade was overturned a year ago, a very well-known rabbi wrote a piece. So this is Rav J. David Bleich. Miriam, do you want to explain who that is? Okay, so Rabbi Bleich is a very well-known rabbi who specializes in medical ethics. I was actually really shocked when this came out. So he published this in May, May 12, 2022. His wife actually taught me in college and I really respected her. So to me, it felt like almost like a personal betrayal. Like you're the rabbi who talks about medical ethics and you're supposed to understand the ways in which your sock impacts people's lives. Uh, and you're supposed to be sensitive to that. He's responding to the, the, to the Supreme Court's decision to reverse Roe. I kind of want, I want to read from the end. I want to read them in his own words. I'm not paraphrasing or putting anything in his name, right? So this is from the conclusion of his, of his essay. The argument that the lives of Jewish women will be endangered by rejection of Roe v. Wade is specious and fully known to be so by those who advance it. Pregnant women had no constitutional difficulties in procuring medical abortions before Roe v. Wade and will face no constitutional barrier after its repeal. True, it is possible, albeit unlikely, that some few states might enact a blanket prohibition against abortion. It is even more unlikely that such a prohibition would survive constitutional challenge. Craven political correctness is no defense for the indefensible. We should not seek to curry favor with or approbation of the so-called intelligentsia. I dare say that no Jewish woman died as a result of legal restraints prior to Roe v. Wade. No Jewish woman is likely to die in the wake of its repeal. Abortion for medical need will continue to be available in most and probably all jurisdictions. If any lives are lost, it will be because of inability to afford the expense of travel, not because of constitutional impediment. What should the Jewish response be? 
it should be twofold. One, the establishment of a fund to, to defray the cost of travel to a jurisdiction in which a life-threatening pregnancy can be terminated, such a stipend to be limited to women who produce a statement signed by a recognized POSEC attesting to the halachic propriety of the procedure. Two, a second far larger fund to provide for care of pregnant women who carry their babies to term but feel compelled to surrender them for adoption. That is the response of Rahman B'nai Rahman. So there's a lot here. That's the end. I think it's a, a historical in that how would he know if women died before? Because probably they did. Feels like an irresponsible thing to say. Yeah. And then he this says- This has never uh, happened and never will. Right. That that's is kind of just very, very, uh, that's a very self-assured statement um, with no footnotes. Uh, and then he says some states might enact a blanket prohibition. Well, that's happened. Yeah. And we knew it would. That wasn't theoretical. Yeah, at the time. This is not and surprising not, at all. And not only Why that, but surprised? some states, some states will prosecute women who have traveled out of state yeah. to do it. Yes, yeah. correct. And um, it feels like guilty until proven innocent in the whole situation. The, the the part that really got me was where he says, well, the only thing that would like really be the reason that women might die is because they can't afford to travel to a state where they can get an abortion. So the implicit acknowledgement there is that actually women need Abortion access. Abort, uh, access to abortion. We need the kinds of policies that exist in blue states. That's yes. what we need. And you need to assume that that will be available. What if there's a federal ban, right? What if there's and a federal like, ban? This has come up in name Republican yeah. candidates like Nikki Haley, who said that they would not veto a federal ban. So what oh. if that happens, right? Uh, and then and then we should establish a fund. So here's a woman, she's undergoing a miscarriage. She has to get this sock. It has to be written. Then she needs to apply to this fund where someone, like just the levels of bureaucracy to, mm -hmm. it, it, it just- They're all barriers. These are all barriers to access. Yes. We're often talking about women in very vulnerable situations, when we, especially when we talk about Orthodox women, right? We're talking about women in abusive marriages because or Orthodox women, for the most part, right? If everything's going great for them, for the most part, they're not looking to terminate their pregnancies, right? For fun. Assuming anyone yeah. does, which honestly they don't. But let's say right. specifically Orthodox women. We're talking about teenage girls who yeah. may have been assaulted. We're talking or, about- Or you know what? Pregnant. Maybe a teenage girl had consensual sex or, or had consensual got sex pregnant who and made she a doesn't want a baby. Right. And like, I'm sorry, but this is this is a big thing for me. And uh, I don't know that the whole conversation, it's- this piece of Judaism is so fundamentally important to me that it it stands in this very prime location of the way I view God and life and women and Judaism. And it's so important to me that the woman's life, that the woman's life is put above all else in this conversation. And yes, it's complicated. And yes, when you're talking about mental health, it's complicated. And yes, what does it mean to save a life? Yes, I understand that there are conversations around this, but the fact that these are conversations and that ultimately it is about the woman's life, that is fundamentally 
so significant and important to me as a Jewish woman and as a feminist. And it is so, so important to me that my beliefs align in this area as a Jewish woman, as a person, and as a mother, as a mother of daughters, and as a mother of a son. And it's something that came up for me. I I have a 16-year-old daughter, and we have talked about sex. And I think it's an important conversation to have with your children. And I think it's an important conversation to have with your, your teenagers. And there are questions that need to be answered. And I believe that it's a it's an ongoing conversation. It's not just a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, birds and the bees. <laughs> we talked about it once and now it's over. It's an it's an ongoing conversation about life and sex and love and what all this means and your body and pleasure and and choice. And I'm not a hard ass mom. <laughs> but one of the most intense conversations I've ever had with my daughter. And one of the most intense things I've ever said to her was about this issue. And I actually called my mom about it after I said it to her. This was before my mom died. And it was really important to me that I had this conversation with my mom. And I'm so glad I called her about it. Sorry, I'm choking up a little bit, so it's hard to get through. I called my mom about it, and I'm so happy that I did. And I said to my daughter, if you're going to have sex, you have to be prepared for the possibility of either having a baby or having an abortion. And to me, that means marriage. And this conversation was also about God. But... I was worried that maybe this was too scary a thing to say. And I asked my mom, I said, this is what I told her. Is that okay? Like, was that too scary? And she was like, no, it's true. Yeah. And I felt so good about it. And I'm so glad I asked my mom. And it was this moment that I had with her several months before she passed away. And I really hold that with me. And I was proud of myself that she was proud of me for saying it. And these are conversations we have to have with our daughters. And whatever words you choose, these are conversations and these are choices. And this is something that exists in all of us. Every time we make the choice to have sex as a woman and God forbid in a situation where you haven't made that choice and right. it happens anyway. Yeah. And the implication that the woman's life would not be paramount in all of these conversations is so viscerally disturbing to me. It's very confusing for me when, when people don't put this at the forefront of their decision-making process in life and in voting and in this country. You should be able to talk to your rabbi and mm -hmm. to your doctor and to your people and figure out what it means for you to be saving your life if this happens for you. Yeah. It just so. shouldn't be up to the federal government or right. the state government. This just yeah. shouldn't be the, the idea that you would have to call a lawyer to see if you're allowed to save your life. I just I can't fathom it.
I think this is where, you know, the right will argue this is a, a, a strong moral issue. And that is why, you know, the state needs to intervene. And I think like Lehefeh, right, the, the exact opposite. This is such a deeply important moral issue that the state is incapable and individual also it is so much a situation where the individual circumstances determine everything that blanket rules inevitably are going to prevent situations that you know that that people would agree with and no one's going to have the same moral intuition we're not going to get to the same place the thing that i feel like people might not understand about a pro-choice perspective is that I don't morally approve of every abortion. I don't. There are people who are getting abortions that I don't approve of. I think they're not taking it seriously enough, right? The truth is, do I know anyone like that? No, because if I know them, I probably know their circumstance well enough to have empathy and compassion and understand them, right? That's but theoretically, a, that's there could a, be people out there who are doing it with a little bit too flippant of an attitude, right? It's possible. It's possible. We might get people in Are they? I don't them. know. Yeah, there might be people in comments that say, you know, hey, I work in the hospital and people come in and they laugh about it and they don't seem to care. It's possible, right? But, but I would rather live in the world where those people can do that. And remember, yeah. we're not talking about late term, right? We're talking about early term here. I would rather live in that world. And that will happen sometimes because we're not going to live in the perfect world where every abortion I approve of is, a, is allowed and every abortion I don't approve of is not allowed because I'm not the king, right? I don't get to make every decision. We have to pick a blanket rule that works for as many situations as it can. And I think a, a situation where the law stays out of it and the doctors set limits that seem morally applicable to them and seem morally reasonable with room for them to push a little bit one way or the other, depending on the situations without the fear of prison hanging over their heads. I think that's how we get the best possible framework for the most ethical possible outcome here, because this is not a situation where the stricter the better, right? Being too quote unquote strict about this, right? Saying less abortion is better, or is, you know, broken women, dead women, hurt women. This is not a situation that has no cost to increasing the quote unquote strictness of it, right? So we're not going to have a perfect system. I think people imagine that we can have a law that is like, only the good abortions, not the bad ones. There's no such thing. There's no you such know, thing. It doesn't exist. Also, we, we all have different ethical frameworks, right? Like the, the argument that this is the one single moral position on this question is so arrogant to assume that you are the only one who thinks about this in a serious way. Like Judaism, even within Judaism, even within halachic Judaism, there are a range of positions and opinions. And every Rav is going to take it seriously. Uh, and one Rav will come to a different answer than a different Rav. And that's just within Judaism. Then if we consider other faith traditions, for example, yeah. let's say there is a Muslim woman who within 120 days, you know, she gets an abortion because that's how she is advised by her, uh, her religious leader. Maybe a Rav would have come to a different conclusion but that does not mean that she did not approach this with seriousness with integrity mm -hmm. you know with a sense of ethics with wanting to do this in the right way that the that the religious leaders advising her 
didn't approach this without, you know, a clear-eyed look at whatever their tradition. Or, or non-religious, right? Or people can have a serious ethical yeah. moral. Exactly. Uh, there are secular people is- also can have a system of ethics and and most people most people do want to live ethically and are not cavalier about these kinds of things. So I think I think this is the case where, you know, that that uh that thing that people always quote from Ronald Reagan, oh, if the government says I'm here to help, then you're like, you want to run away or the government always mucks it up. I think this is one of those cases where I do take the like very libertarian position and just say the state should absolutely not be involved in this. Right. In this and then someone would say, but it's unethical. And you know what? So is adultery. And it doesn't need to be against the law. Right. They're not everything that doesn't seem right does has to be illegal. Sometimes there are good reasons for leaving things in the realm of personal choice, even if that means people are going to make choices you disagree with. Now, most of the cases we talked about today, I think, will be pretty morally simple to many of our listeners, right? Like, we're talking about women who are sick. We're talking about women with, you know, uh, you know, pregnancies that are unhealthy, things like that. There are women who have abortions for other reasons, right? Financial reasons are the number one reason cited for women to have abortions. More than 50% of the women who have abortions in America already have a child, right? So we're not just talking about people who are like, you know, my career comes first. I don't really care, whatever. Like, yeah, those exist too. But more than 50% are saying, you know what? I, The life of the child that I already have comes first. I need to make sure I can take care of that child. I need to make sure I can keep a roof over our head. No one's keeping it there for me, right? This is America. I have to do it. If I have a baby I can't afford, I'll be told, why do you have a baby you can't afford, right? So I think that the idea that there aren't serious ethical considerations, even completely non-religious, like it just isn't factual. It isn't what we know to be the case. I think that this is individual. It's moral. It's ethical. It's religious. It's emotional. There are so many factors here that to me, basically, no matter what, it is so many things, but legal is just not one of them. I don't even know. For me, I hold very little, if any, judgment for someone who decides to have an abortion at pretty much any point in pretty much any situation because. I believe women and I believe their choices mean something and matter pretty much no matter what. And you don't have to ask a man for permission about it, whether it's your religious leader or your doctor or your husband. I don't know. I think this is really, really up to a woman. It is really, really, it's her body. Until that baby comes out and it's breathing and it's living and it's an entity unto itself that is no longer reliant on her body, it's her body and it's her choice. Halakha does not agree with you, but here's the thing. Okay. Orthodox, yeah, exactly. Orthodox women, newsflash, this is going to shock some people, don't always follow Halakha. They don't always listen to a rabbi. Sometimes they feel the need to do something from a personal place that they're like, you know what? I can't tolerate asking and being told no, potentially. I just need to do what I need to do. Oh, 100%. And, and, and that listen, is just a reality that we have I'm, to account for. I'm not saying that 
what I just said in terms of my beliefs about women is what I would do if this is what mm-hmm. happened to me. Yeah. But it's what I believe for women and what I believe that their choice should be just for all of us with functioning uteruses if this exists it should be your choice what you decide to do with that choice and who you decide to go to for help making that decision it's your call it's also your choice yes that's what i mean and i'm grateful that i haven't had to make this choice and yes i had to have a dnc an abortion i had to do it but it wasn't really a choice. Like there was nothing that came upon me that 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 was not a difficult decision. It it had to happen. I'm grateful that it was able to happen for the sake of my health and my future children. And it was all okay. But this has to be for women to decide. This is religious freedom to be able to make that choice. I got really passionate about this. I didn't even know this was going to pop out of me. (laughs) No, it's really good. Shira, what you're saying, although you could not be farther away on your position here, but the underlying idea here, so it reminds me so much. So Rav Moshe Feinstein was like the preeminent halachic authority in America for the in the in the 20th century, and of course had a lot to say about abortion. He was actually one of the most um, strict authorities. He had the it was sort of the least permissive. So in that sense, he would fully disagree with everything you said. He would be like, your body, your choice, absolutely not. But he did agree with this idea that it's not good to have this in the legal space. Um, you know, he the, I, I read an interview not with him, but with his son-in-law who was worked 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 with him very closely. And he said this is Rabbi Tendler was his name. My father-in-law, the late Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, felt very strongly that allowing the government to legislate in any area of morals and ethics gives them a toehold in religion. And if you let them in a little bit, the government will begin to expand its role in this area and start legislating what is proper to teach and what is proper to do in a religious context. And he mentions that Rabbi Feinstein had lived for like many years under Stalin and in Russia. So his idea of what happens when the government overtakes a religious experience is, is not a good one. So he was really very... Um, adamant that we don't promote religious intrusion into government, um, even more so than many other rabbis of his time, even where the current legislation being proposed is in accordance with the Torah or the halachic viewpoint on something. He just didn't want laws being written on the basis of any religious th- like thinking at all, because he felt like ultimately that doesn't work out well for the Jews, right? He said, for Rabbi Feinstein, the complete separation of church and state was absolutely necessary for the survival of any minority group. Wow. So this interview was actually from 1989. So obviously many, many years before Roe was overturned. Um, but there were other articles that came out at the time when Roe was overturned um, talking about, you know, looking at his writings and other rabbis of the era to sort of understand what they would have said. And some of them were asked explicitly, you know, would you want to see Roe v. Wade overturned? And Rabbi Feinstein said no. He said even though the current state allows for many, many abortions that are not at all allowed under halakha, and he saw that as a moral disgrace, and he really thought it was a terrible thing, he went so far as to um, – had very, very sharp language for for people who are allowing abortions to happen that he felt were not halakhically um, permissible. However, he still felt like we need the space to make that decision in the context of halakha and not the context of law. 
we don't need to answer to the secular court if we tell a woman not only she can, but she must terminate her pregnancy in order to get chemo, for example, which is a real situation that comes up, you know, not infrequently. A woman who's diagnosed with cancer may be required halakhically to end her pregnancy and treat her cancer because she comes first, right? I've thought about that a lot. Yeah, it's a it's a very real situation. Um, and other and other conditions, that's not the only one. And he felt like there's enough situations where halakh- abortion is halakhically mandated that having it illegal would actually create this barrier to us observing our religion the way we are supposed to. Yeah, I agree with you, Rabbi Feinstein. Rav. She would not agree with you, though. I'm sorry. I know. I, you would I say your body, your choice is that's okay. nonsense. I'm I'm okay that he would think that what I'm saying is total nonsense. But I ultimately really agree with him that this is about freedom of choice, and you have a choice to practice your religion mm-hmm. and to make your choices based on that. Yeah, I yeah. feel very strongly about it, and I agree with you, Rav Moshe Feinstein. Even if you don't agree with me, I think there. Um, I I think there's a very strong religious liberties argument here, uh, and I'm I'm curious if anyone will will sue and make that case. I'm um, waiting. I, I I'm waiting for the lawsuit. In- I am waiting for a Jewish woman. I don't want it to happen to her because, ugh, it's not yeah. a it's not something I yeah. wish on someone. But <clears throat> I am waiting for this lawsuit. I'm waiting for it. For me, I, I think it's a very compelling argument. Um, it really frames how I, I think about this. Um, I was actually thinking, like, what if different religious groups like Jews and Muslims aligned and were like, you know, this kind of intrudes on our on the establishment clause, this this uh violates our our religious liberties. Um yeah, and I I I was not able to say that to Muhammad, like, oh, this is something we should uh, get together on. Because it's funny because I I feel like I have become a two-issue voter. I never was a single-issue voter. I never, you know, I was always like, we have to look, consider all the options and the blah, blah, blah. But, uh, but um, now I think I have become a two-issue voter. <laughs> Israel and, and reproductive accent, like reproductive yeah. These are the two. And I live in New York, so I've got great senators on both issues. Um, Israel and reproductive rights. That's yeah, those, those are, are my big for me. Pro, pro, you know, after after Roe, definitely. I think it's an issue of Pekuach Nefesh. And here's the thing. From women have lots of babies. And yeah. we have good maternal health outcomes. But when you have lots of babies, things go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and we should not be naive about that. So I think women do. I think they know that. I mean, that's, again, getting to this thing where women are they know it's not theoretical. Every time I've had this conversation and it's come up, I, I Shira mentioned earlier that I wrote an article for Kfeller last year on this topic. And after that, I had women coming up to me in random at a, at a wedding in just random situations saying, you know, I read your article. Women who you wouldn't expect to agree with my point of view on this kind of quietly said, you know, I read your article and I, I really liked what you had to say. I thought it was you know, it really resonated with me. And I was I was kind of surprised. But I do think that from women are just not naive about this. If you're going to get pregnant four, five, six, ten times in your life or more, you're going to run into a scary situation at least once, right? 
And maybe it's going to work out okay for you, but you're going to know someone else who had a little bit more scary situation. You might know someone else who had a tragic situation. It's not abstract, right? There's, if you're, if you're looking at, you know, dozens of pregnancies in your own family, in your own social circle, your sisters, your mother, or your friends, you're going to know about these things. These things are not abstract, but at the same time, Every time I talk to these women, and I've had so many conversations about this because of this, um, they'll say, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll name these situations, right? They'll talk about these circumstances that they know, that they feel compassionate towards, that they understand. But then they always stop and say, but like, that's ours, right? That's, that's, that's the people I know who have good reasons, who are making good choices, who are being thoughtful, who are being careful. But then there's those other women out there, Right. And there's always this us versus them that comes up. I shouldn't say always, but often there's this us versus them, right? When you're talking about a woman who's married, you're talking about a woman who's trying to have a family and things are going wrong for reasons outside of her control. And she has forced into a difficult situation. Then there's compassion and understanding. And sometimes I think people assume that those other women out there, the unmarried ones, the career-obsessed ones, the women who don't care enough about having children, who don't see the value in it, who don't appreciate the sanctity of life, and there's an assumption that they are not making this decision from the same place of moral seriousness, and therefore those are the bad abortions, right? Those are the ones I don't approve of. And like I said before, I don't necessarily approve of them either, but I still think that those women have the right to do it. And I think practically speaking, we cannot live in a country that grants the freedoms to the good ones and not the bad ones. Yeah. But I also don't necessarily agree that those women who maybe don't want to have a baby, they don't want to have a baby now or they don't want to have a baby ever. And this is this is the piece that I wrote that I can also link in the show notes. I think we have to step, have to take a step back and understand what, like, where did that come from? Why do we have women in this country who, if they got pregnant by accident, right? would feel like there's no way I can go through with this. What is it about our culture? What is it about our safety net? What is it about the way we as a, as a, as a society treat those women that makes them think that there's no life for me if I have this baby? So as has become the custom, after we recorded, this PS voice note came in from Devorah. Since we re- recorded the podcast yesterday, there's some news coming out of Texas again that I think is really relevant and illustrates an important point um, in this debate. So back when Roe was first overturned last year, the federal government basically reached out to hospitals um, in the states that were going to ban abortion and said, you know, if there's a woman in your hospital who is dying because of a pregnancy, you are legally required to end her pregnancy in order to save her life. There is a federal mandate that you must save her life. And those hospitals, some of those hospitals in some of those states simply said, no, they said, we will not end the life of the fetus for the life of the mother. We don't think that this law applies to that situation. And this has been working its way through the courts. And now the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Texas has ruled that hospitals are not required to save a woman's life um, if her pregnancy is killing her. So it's a pretty shocking decision that I think many people who didn't think you know, didn't really think what the overturning of Roe v. Wade would mean, would be surprised to see that we've come to this place where hospitals are saying we actually don't have to save a woman's life, even if she's literally dying in front of us, we can choose not to help her. Um, I, I certainly never thought we'd get here. And I think this is something that especially for us Orthodox people who are used to seeing the world through that 
you know, the, the Jewish lens, which is, is, you know, strict and it's uh, full of laws and full of rules, but it's also quite compassionate. And I think we sometimes mistakenly assume that other types of laws will have that same kind of compassion and leeway. And what I mean by that is if you look at the laws of Pekuach Nefesh, right, when you're allowed to break halacha in order to save someone's life, um, you know, there's a debate about when exactly it's appropriate to do that and how much danger do they have to be in, how imminent does the risk have to be. But in practice, we we know from our own experiences that people don't really second guess it, right? They make a good faith decision in the moment. They do what they think they need to do, whether that's calling 911, driving someone to the hospital, whatever it is. And they never really face any backlash afterwards. No one really comes back to them and says, you know, I don't think they're really were at risk. They wouldn't really bleed out. They could have waited till after Shabbos. Like, it just doesn't happen. And I think we assumed that American law would kind of be the same way, that if a doctor makes a decision, a good faith decision, that something is necessary, no one will, bother, no one will you know, no one will, uh, they won't face any consequences for that. There won't be backlash. And what we're seeing is the opposite. And I think that's kind of, shocking um i think for many of us who um kind of assumed that there would be a certain amount of compassion and human understanding built into these laws it might be a really upsetting thing to realize but i think it's important that we do realize it and that we're not naive about how these laws could affect us in situations that don't seem morally complicated uh like a, a dying woman so um yeah, I think that's something that we have to keep in mind because we don't even know. I mean, this is a law that just is, you know, coming uh, a, a judgment that's just coming out today. We don't know where this is going to continue going over the coming years with the changing political landscape and everything else. The situation we're seeing right now is not the end. This is not the end point. This is possibly just somewhere in the middle. So that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you made it all the way to the end, yashar koach. If you have questions or comments, you can reach us at voice.notes.podcast on Instagram or voicenotespodcast18 at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by us, edited by me, and thank you to Nehadar for our intro and outro music. Mm-hmm.